Thanks, Neil. <clears throat> hey, what an inspiring story of faithfulness, huh? When you think about the story of Noah and the ark. And um, just when we talk about an inspiring story of faithfulness, um, what are we talking about? Is, uh, like, who's the point of that? Is God the point of that? Or is Noah the point of that? Who, who, do you, who would you say is the inspiring example of faithfulness as you think about that? And what I would just say, I'll, I'll kind of answer that, but you know that ultimately uh, God is the hero of every story in the Bible? Like, it's not the people that are the heroes. It is God that is the hero. But one of the things that we learn, like as we study the Bible and as we think about these things, we actually learn that, that not only is God the hero ultimately, but when God is a person's hero, they become an inspiring story of faithfulness. And so uh, we have been talking about um, this and talking about God and how his character is revealed in this story. But I want to think that today about Noah. What made him so unique? What was so significant? What are the things that God intends us to learn and to be inspired about? You know, um, Genesis last week, we talked about the fact that as we looked at the very beginning of the story, that, that as we look at the world, we shouldn't be surprised at sin. When we see sin everywhere, we see brokenness. Now, we know Genesis actually explains how that happened, why the world is that way, why we are that way. And, and one of the things about Noah that we saw even the last time we looked at this story is that it is possible to be spiritually faithful no matter how wicked the people around you are. And the big picture in this that we'll see, this both uh, last time, this time, and the next time we're in this passage, is that God is so gracious and so merciful, but God judges sin. And that's one of the things that we see. You know, when you look at the story of Noah and you think about people who are spiritually faithful, the world looks at that and they're not necessarily inspired by Christians, faithful Christians. Sometimes the world will look at a faithful Christian and just think, man, that person's crazy. Why would they make the decisions they make? Why would they make the sacrifices that they make? But for us who are believers, when we read stories, like Noah, when we read, we read stories, when we meet people that are faithful, that make sacrifices, that honor the Lord in their life, we don't think that's crazy. When you're a believer and you have the Holy Spirit in you and you read about the real life stories of people who walked and lived a faithful life, man, we read that and we just think, I want that to be me. And I just have a question for you as you think about that. Um, when you read stories like that, when you read the Bible, do you look at that and just say, I want to be that way? Have you ever thought about the power of a good example? Um, I was thinking about, uh, you know, just um, the four-minute mile. Have, have any of you guys ever heard about the four-minute mile, the, the first person to break the record for the four-minute mile? So this is the, a picture of this man uh, when he is older. His name's Roger. <laughs> Great name, and I, I want to just go out there and say he spells it correctly, which is, well, okay, R-O-G-E-R, but Roger, you spell it a different way, but still, we're glad there's two Rogers in this church. Um, anyway, so this guy, he broke the four-minute mile barrier, and it's interesting. Doctors and scientists said breaking the four-minute mile was impossible, that one would die in the attempt 
And, and then he says, thus, when I got up from the track after uh, collapsing at the finish line, I figured I was dead. <laughs> you know, the interesting thing about uh, this man, uh, when he broke the four-minute mile, it was 1954. And he had uh, run a race before that where he was two seconds away from four minutes. And so he was really inspired and really trying to break that four-minute mile. You know what's amazing is that 46 days later, another person broke the four-minute mile. Like, nobody could do this. It was viewed as impossible. And as soon as Roger breaks this four-minute record, somebody else, within two months, breaks the same record. Did you know that as of today, over 1,700 people have broken the four-minute mile? And did you know that in 2022, a high school student broke the four-minute mile? Now, the second man to break the four-minute mile, this happens 46 days later, his name was uh, Landy, and it's, uh, there's actually a statue of him. So 46 days later, there are two people in the world who have ever run a, uh, faster that broken the four-minute mile, and the, the second person to break the four-minute mile didn't win the race he was in. And that is he's running this race, and he's ahead. Roger happens to be in the race, and he's ahead the whole time. And right at the end, he looks over his shoulder, and just as he does, Roger actually comes in first place, and he comes in second place. But he was the second person on earth to break the four-minute mile. That's one of the things that I think about when I read stories about people in the Bible, real-life stories like Noah, like Daniel, like Joseph. And you read these stories about people, and they live a faithful life in a crooked generation. And when you read that, and when you think about the fact that that was a real person with struggles just like you and me, they, they had worries and concerns. And, it's, and, and when we read these stories, sometimes we, we separate ourselves from them. We read them like they're not real stories. We don't think about how it would have felt to ben, be them going through the things that they were going through, partly because in five minutes we read the, to the beginning and end of the story, right? But they didn't live, live it that way. They lived it in real time, just like you and me live those stories, and when I think about this story of Noah, man, I want to be inspired to be faithful in a sinful generation. I, I want to be a person that loves God and that has a complete affection and confidence in Christ. And that's really, I think, what it takes is that when we love God with all of our heart, when we really see Him for who He is, and when He is big in our life, everything else becomes small. You know, God-honoring faithfulness can definitely happen, and the story brings God glory, and as we dwell on it, it inspires us to be faithful. But have you ever thought about the fact that in the same way that Noah was faithful, in the same way we read a story about Noah and just say that's amazing, how could he be the only righteous person on earth like he was? When we read stories like Joseph and how faithful he was in his life, when we read stories about Daniel, who Daniel's praying and they pass a law to say you can't pray, and Daniel just opens up his windows when, when this law has been passed, and he prays three times a day exactly the way he always had. And what was the result of that? Um, he was taken, and he was thrown into a lion's den. Now, when you think about that and how hard that would have been, do you ever 
think about the fact that it is possible, and not only is it possible, but God intends you to be that same faithful example, and that everybody who knows you in your life, everybody who's around you, who is watching your life, looks at you and feels the same inspiration, the same confidence, the same amazement as they look at the way you live, as we do when we read these Bible stories. You know, that's not just miraculous things from the past. That's what God expects and intends for every single one of us. You know, I think about this week, you know, the, the people that inspire me that I see around the church. Um, this week was a really fun week. On uh, Friday, we did a Galentine's event. It was just amazing. We had a ton of women. Yes, you guys can cheer and clap. And, and it was just so fun. This church was filled up. We had a ton of women. And they just had a, a great time. And I was just thinking, you know, the ladies in our church are really fun. You know, I, I was doing sound. I didn't go to the women's event. But I was, I was in the room, and I was, I was helping with sound and stuff. But I was just looking around at just these ladies having a great time together. And I was so thankful. Um, I'm, I was thankful for Judy and just her faithfulness, the way that she leads this ministry, her commitment, her dedication, um, how she actually sees what matters in life. And then she does fun things to help uh, those things be emphasized. I was thinking nobody should miss out on that stuff, and, and many people didn't. That was amazing. And Candy, she's like a cruise director. She was up here, her and Tawny and some other people helping everybody dance around in here. We, we, they did some dancing in this room. Um, and Debbie Boletto taught. One of the things that, that she said that really stood out to me was just talking about love. And one of the things that she said that really stood out um, to me is that she said, when we love God the most is when we will love other people the best. You ever think about that? When you love God more than anything else, you will love the people in your life um, the best that you could possibly love them. It's like, man, how encouraging to be around um, faithful people. That was awesome. And uh, God intends that for us. You know, as we read these stories, we're reminded of God, who He is, His power, how He relates to mankind. These things comfort us, uh, they inspire us, and they motivate us. So this story, when I think about it, it is an inspiring story to faithful Christian living, and it demonstrates the possibility of living a faithful life in the midst of a sinful generation. You know, this story comforts us. When we read this, uh, we're going to be comforted in the power and grace of God. You ever look at the world and feel like things are out of control? <laughs> Have you thought about our political situation? It's like we got, you know, it's like if you watch the news, you see Texas, um, and they're fighting with the federal government over the border. And then you see 26 other Republican states saying, we stand with Texas, you ever, th you know, it's like, that's like the makings potentially of a civil war. Like, have you ever thought of, like, do you think, we just think that kind of stuff's unrealistic, could never happen. You know, it happened before, and I see some of those things shaping up, and, and just the political things that are happening that I think we're going to see the fruit of this year. You know, as I think about November, <laughs> I'm looking at all the stuff I see happening politically, and I start thinking to myself, what? could happen this year. Man, things could really melt down. 
Um, I, I got to tell you, recently I, I went to this thing with the Orange County Sheriff's Department, and I was pretty impressed and thankful. Um, but have you ever seen movies like 24, TV shows like 24? Uh, or um, there's another one with Gene Hackman, I keep forgetting it. Uh, Michelle, what is the name of that movie? I, I forgot. Anyway, but basically him and Will Smith are running around and they're moving satellites around to keep an eye on them. And they walk into the store and the video camera catches them. And what I want you to know is that's the world we live in. So I recently was invited for our church security to the Orange County Sheriff's Department. They have this new station with all these different uh, law enforcement things. And, and it's this huge building. And in one of the buildings, it's like a room bigger than this. And they have TVs all around the outside. And they do real live, like, like uh, real-time uh, vision and, and evaluation of things. And they're having every business. Um, the goal is to have all schools, all churches, and all businesses connect their video systems to their center, which means if we ever had trouble, we just call the police department, they tap a button, and the, all the cameras in our church come up on their screen around this room, and they have hundreds of agents, uh, FBI, Homeland Security, that can see everything, and if somebody runs out of this church building, they watch them with our cameras, and as they go across the street, the, the cameras of the other businesses catch them when they drive down the street, um, they drive down the street, and all the street cameras that monitor traffic see them, and they can just type. They're using AI now, too. So they just type in, show me a red truck with a bike rack on the back, and instantly the computer looks at every camera in the entire city and throws it up on the screen. The, the police department, the sheriff, his body camera is on a screen. The camera on the car is on a screen. And one of the things I was thinking about as I looked at that and think about our world, I think how much I love that. I mean, in a sense, the Orange County Sheriff's Department is spectacular, and that's going to keep us safe. But what happens when we live in a world where the people behind those cameras and behind all that power are not people who have our best interests at heart? What happens then? And when you think about all those kinds of things and think about the political turbulence, you want to know what... Uh, my mind went to next, that God is more powerful than every single human being and any kind of technology that there is anywhere on earth. And I'm not afraid of that kind of stuff. I think my job is to be faithful and to honor the Lord. And no matter what happens with that, God is all-powerful. And that's one of the things as we look at this story and as we think about this, learning rightly from this story is going to inform the choices and our feelings and how we approach life in, on this earth. So uh, this is what I want to consider is this, our first point as we jump into Genesis, is that the knowledge and love for God leads to a blameless and inspiring life. You know, there are times that living a godly life, like think about all that power and control in the hands of Hitler in the hands of uh, a communist government, in the hands of a government that opposes Christianity, and what, what that could mean in a faithful believer's life when, when you're living in an environment with that kind of control. And what you find out is that when you love God and when you know and understand who He is, that will lead to a blameless 
and an inspiring life. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Um, And then it says that Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so we see that godliness, and this is the family. Noah, his three sons, and their wives are the only ones that God is going to save. Now, blameless, by the way, blameless and righteous, you know those are the same two words used to describe Job? Um, when God looks at the earth and says Job is the most blameless and righteous man on earth. This is a, an amazing statement. And I was thinking about um, in the Old Testament here in Ezekiel, um, uh, Noah's name appears with Daniel and Job. And this is what it says. God's talking about the judgment that is going to come on Israel for their disobedience. And I just think that this is interesting what he says here. He says he's telling them how certain judgment is going to be. And then he just throws out the names of three incredibly righteous people. And Noah's name is on that list. He says uh, if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in this city... They would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. He says, my judgment is so certain that if those righteous people were there, they're the only ones who would be saved. It goes on in verse 20, even if if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. The point of this is that These are three amazingly righteous people, Um, and that's what God wants you and I to be. You know, when you think about um, just uh, Job and Daniel and the heroes, when you think about this whole salvation, do you remember what happens? Actually, we haven't got there yet, but we're going to get there in Genesis. Remember when uh, the angels visit uh, Abraham and say, we're going to go destroy Lot, and and, I'm sorry, we're going to go destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and then what does Abraham do? Remember, he says, God, are you going to wipe away the righteous along with the wicked? And um, God says, uh, and and so uh, Abraham's talking to God, and he's just saying, if there were 50 righteous people in the city, would you save them? And God goes, yes. If there's 50 righteous people, um, I won't overthrow Sodom and Gomorrah. And then uh, Abraham works his way all the way down to 10. And guess what? Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because there were not 10 righteous people there. But you want to know something? Um, God takes Lot out, and who else does Lot take, God take with Lot? He takes his wife and his daughters. Now, his wife doesn't make it because <laughs> she disobeyed, so she gets turned into a pillar of salt. But God actually takes Lot's unrighteous family with him. Um, do you remember Solomon when Solomon becomes really wicked? And, um, and what does it say? It says that God did not um, uh, rip the kingdom out of Solomon's hands, even though he was sinful. Why? Because of his servant, David. Now, I've got a question for you. When you think about righteousness, you think about the righteousness in your life. By the way, that's the contrast being made there. There's plenty of examples of God's judgment where he saves unrighteous people because they're connected to somebody who's righteous. I got a question for you. And when God looks at you and your family, and maybe people in your family are struggling, or maybe there's people in your family that should have God's discipline in their life or punishment in their life, are you so righteous? 
and so faithful that God just says, you know, that's a person that loves me. And because they love me so much, I'm not only going to bless them, I'm going to bless the people that they love and care about. I'm going to bless the people who are associated with them. Um, Would you put yourself in that category? You know, I remember uh, times in my life where I've struggled with sinfulness, failures in my life. And as I confess my sins, as I've confessed my sins in the past, one of the things that I've prayed as I think about this, I think, you know, if God is ever going to discipline or judge me, do you want to know who else gets impacted by that? Like if I'm married to Michelle and God's disciplining me, whatever happens to me is going to impact her. And I, I thought about this when my kids were young, like they're these little five, six, seven, eight-year-old kids. And I just thought, if I ever do something that brings God's discipline into my life, if he ever says, Roger needs to be disciplined, who gets impacted by that? My kids. And I were sometimes when I would pray for God to forgive me or whatever, I would say, Lord, don't punish my kids or Michelle because of me. Please just forgive me. You know, um, have you thought about the significance of living a faithful, righteous life? And have you ever thought about times in your life where maybe you have secret sins going on? you got things going on in your life that the Bible clearly says brings God's discipline and, just, and judgment? And uh, have you ever lived a life and kind of thought, well, actually, I'm doing okay. Nothing's happening to me even though I'm doing these things. And have you ever thought about maybe one of your kids is spiritually faithful and God's sparing you because of them? I just, I just want to go out there and say I want to be a person who is a source of blessing in the people's lives around me because I love God, because I'm committed to honoring and obeying Him in my life. You know, that's actually what God intends for you. These kinds of things are not just for some Bible hero. This is what God wants from every Christian. And by the way, when I'm thinking about who should be an elder in this church, when I'm thinking about who should be a leader, you want to know what goes through my mind? I think about the people I know, and I think, who's a person that if they were in leadership, God would bless our our whole church because they have a heart and a love and a sincerity and a reverence for God. That's who I want in leadership. Um, I want people who, because of God's favor on their life, will pour out blessing on the ministry of our church. And that's what we need to pray for. So we see that we can be faithful. Noah was faithful. And you know, when you think about how do you do that, you know, it's interesting. I think Psalm 119, verse 9 through 11, how do you live a faithful life? I think you have to know God. You have to know what God says. It just says this in Psalm 119.9, how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? We need to be people who read and who obey the Bible. But this is the thing that I see is the heart of this. Look at verse 10. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We are not Pharisees making a bunch of rules, and trying by our own righteousness to get God's favor. We're people who love God. 
and our reading and our obeying of Scripture is just an expression of that. It's like, God, I love you, and I just want to know what you say, and I want to do that. And you know, when you think about those challenging, hard things, you know, I think about what the Bible says to wives about marriage, where, where the Bible says that, that uh, it tells husbands you need to live with your wives in, a, as in an understanding way so your prayers aren't hindered. And, and that same passage says to wives that when your husbands are disobedient to the word, you should win them over without a word by your chaste and your respectful behavior. You know any marriages that are characterized by that? No conflict. No, you treated me this way. I'm going to teach you a lesson so you don't treat me that way in the future. But just people who say, man, I, a, a, a wife who just says, you know, my relationship with my spouse is in a sense a secondary issue. The thing that matters most to me is I love God. I want to be pleasing to the Lord. I want God's blessing in my life. I want to be a person who obeys God. So in my marriage, if my husband's terrible, I'm going to win him over by chaste, and respectful behavior. You know, your relationship with God actually informs what you understand and how you obey Scripture. Or a husband who just says, I'm going to love my wife and, and I'm going to live with her in an understanding way, not because she deserves it, not because I want her to like me, but because that's what God tells me to do. You know, that is, by the way, not a weird, odd, strange unique thing. That should be the definition, the explanation, the expression of every single Christian you know. This is not for heroes. This is just for the average person who says, God, I know you, I love you, and I'm going to obey you in my life. By the way, that was Noah. And that's what God intends for all of us. And when we love God, I'll just tell you, by the way, if you know anybody that lives that way, that will be an inspiration to, to you. I have this friend, and uh, he's, a, he's a professor at a, at a, at a college uh, back east in North Carolina, and uh, he was John's youth pastor. And I met him when our church hired him, and, and I oversaw him in ministry. But one of the things I think about is I think about his marriage. I think about the way he talks about his wife, the way that he treats his wife. I think about the way he expresses self-discipline in his life. And, and often I just think, man, I want to be more like Peter. He inspires me. And uh, I feel like he's a, he's a young man. He's um, in his early 30s. But, uh, but I would say in many ways he's far ahead of me. And, uh, but he's an inspiration to me, and God intends for faithful Christians, for you, to inspire one another. Uh, this is the second thing that we see here, is that knowledge and love for God leads to comfort in the midst of turbulence. When you love God um, and things are melting down, you will feel a sense of comfort. When, when you really know who God is, and you know what the Bible says about who God is, when everything in the world is going crazy, you're going to feel a sense of peace and comfort. Um, it says this in verse 11, it says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, the earth was filled with violence. By, that, by the way, that word violence is, the Hebrew word is Hamas. Have you ever heard that word before? 
And you want to know something? When you think about the most atrocious things that we've heard that have happened at the hands of Hamas, what was happening in Noah's day is that was the entire world was that way. And it's interesting that you have a group of people that name themselves after that. Um, that should tell us something about what's going on here. And so they're, they're, they name themselves violence. And it just says, And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence um, through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So I just want you to know that when you look around, and then when you see the difficulty and the tragedy, and you see all kinds of things going wrong in the world, it's not happening because God doesn't notice. It's not happening because God is powerless to deal with that. You know what's amazing is that when all this is going on, at the beginning of chapter 6, what does God say? He has already said, I see evil on the earth, but he says man's days will be 120 years. Um, God tells Noah, you're going to build an ark. It's going to take you 120 years to do that. And that's how much time I've given this wicked, evil world to repent. You know, uh, 1 Peter 3.20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. You know, that was an expression of God's patience. When you look around at the evil in this world, it's not that God is weak or that he doesn't see it. It's because he's patient. And while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. That should give you comfort. The same way God saved Noah, he will save you. Um, and we are going to be facing that. Here's the third thing that we need to think about. Is that, um, the God's, that a love for God leads to plea, uh, peace that flows from God's provision and his promises. Now, I just want to say this, that as we think about this in the story of Noah, it does fill us with peace, but it also fills us with a sense of urgency. Like, that's one of the things that surprises me, is I know people who are Christians, and uh, when they look around at the world that they live in, when they look around at their kids, and when they look at their friends, I don't see any kind of a sense of spiritual urgency. And they look around at people who they love and who they care about, and they think back to when, oh, this kid went to youth group when he was in youth group. Or this is a kid who I remember when they were small and they prayed a prayer. But then when you look at their life, they're living a life of rebellion. They're, they're living a life that expresses hatred toward God. And you have people that just comfort themselves. Oh, we're not saved by our work, so... I'm sure my kids are okay. Or I hear people say things like, oh, I don't want to bring up the gospel. I don't want to bring up Christianity. It'll make my family members mad and it'll wreck Thanksgiving or it'll wreck Christmas. And I just think that, yes, we have peace in the midst of this, but we have a sense of urgency because we actually understand who God is and what's coming in the future. You know, I think about the book of Amos where God writes to the nation of Israel, and he says to them, you're looking forward to the day of the Lord, the day that Jesus comes back. And then he says to them that, that for you, that is not going to be a day of light. That's going to be a day of darkness. 
So this is religious people who are looking forward to the return of Christ, and God's message to them is, this will be a day of disaster for you, and not a day of light. But for those who are faithful, the return of Christ is a day of hope. And so it just says this, I think about this peace and urgency, and as we think about the responsibilities that God has given us in life, I want to think about Noah and what God asked him to do and what he did. And as we think about that, what was Noah's role and what was God's role? Because as God gives you instructions and as God intends you to think about life, you have responsibilities and God has responsibilities. And we can't mix up what those are. So let's just read this. It's a simple story about Noah uh, building a boat. Now, by the way, we're not going to dig into some of the issues related to this today. I was going to, but then I had better sense. Michelle says, don't preach two sermons on Sunday, just preach one. And so the next time we're in Genesis, we're going to talk about the size of the ark and how many animals could fit in and what happened to the dinosaurs. And, and we're going to answer, oh, what about the Grand Canyon and the age of the earth and how does the flood relate to all of that? So we're going to look at that next time. But for this time, let's just look at this. God gives Noah very specific instructions. By the way, when God gives you instructions, that's comforting, um, have you ever had somebody give you advice that turned out to be bad advice? Have you ever had somebody explain, hey, this is how you should build this, or this is how you do, should do this, and then when you did it, whatever you built fell down because what their idea wasn't a good idea? You ever seen bridges that engineers say, this is how you build a bridge, and then the built bridge falls and kills people? You know, one of the cool things about God's instructions is that God's not learning, and God never makes mistakes, and He never revises anything. He always, the first time, knows what's the best thing to do. And that provides comfort. Um, this is what God says, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You know, God's telling Noah what kind of wood to use when he builds this ark. Nobody's ever built a boat before, and so this is like the first boat. And he says, cover it inside and out with pitch. So he's telling him what to do. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. By the way, multiply that by one and a half for how many feet? Because a cubit's about 18 inches. It's the distance from your elbow to the end of your finger. And make a roof and finish it to a cubit above and set the door in its side. Make it with a lower and a second and a third deck. So there's three decks on the ark. And then, so this is what God's telling Noah to do. And then God's going to talk about what he's going to do. He says, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth, and everything that's on the earth shall die. You know, God in this case gives Noah the easy job. You get to build a boat. I'm going to kill all the people. Um, think about Canaan. You know, God sometimes uses people to do that. You know, people look at the story of the Exodus and how Israel went into Canaan and they killed every man, woman, and child. And people say, that's so terrible. How could that happen? How could God tell people to do that? But what we know is that God actually gave the land of Canaan to Israel 400 years before. And he gave Canaan 
400 years to repent. And when they didn't repent, God said, now you as my army go and wipe them out. Well, in this case, God just tells Noah, you build a boat and I'm going to drown the people. And then he goes on. He says, I'm going to destroy um, all flesh which is in the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. There's people who talk about a localized flood. We'll talk about this later um, in, in our next time together. But I just want you to know there was not a local flood. It says right here that God is going to kill everybody on earth. So it was not a local flood. This was a worldwide flood. And there are a lot of things in the world that don't make sense if there's a world, if there's a local flood. But when you look at the fossil record, when you look at the things that we see on the earth, that atheistic scientists will say, this proves how old the earth is. No, it doesn't. It proves that the entire world was covered with water. And so this was not a localized flood. And then he says in verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you and you will come into the ark, your sons and your wife, your sons, your wives with you, and every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort onto the ark and keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, and of the birds according to their kinds, the animals according to their kinds, every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come to you. So God's saying, I'm going to bring these two animals to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. You know, God didn't just make the food appear on the ark. That was Noah's job. He had to build the ark. He had to go gather food. He had to store the food on the ark. So Noah has stuff he's supposed to physically do. And then he goes on. And it will serve as food for you and them. And it says in verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God had commanded him. You know, I I think about the things that the Bible says in this regard. Um, I think about the fact, Philippians chapter 2 verse 12, you know, there's this perfect uh, connection between our uh, need to obey and understanding how God works in life. Look what it says here in Philippians 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, notice it doesn't say work for your salvation. It says work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That is a reverence for God. That is thinking about God as holy. As, as powerful, as a God who, who judges and who disciplines. We work out our salvation. We work it out with fear and trembling. There is no Christian person in a marriage, no Christian woman should ever dare to read what the Bible says about how to relate to her spouse and just go, yeah, but that's ridiculous. I'm not doing that. I mean, the Bible says, win your husband over without a word by your chaste and respectful behavior. But I'm not doing that. That's crazy. None of the Christian women I know do it. I'm not going to do that. Or return good for evil. Um, Yeah, well, people treat me with evil. I'm going to reply. I'm going to respond with evil. 
Or, or a husband who reads and just goes, my wife irritates me. She's not very nice to me. And then ignores what the Bible says about love your wives as Christ loved the church. Any Christian that disregards that is crazy because there is a God who made the world and His intention is that we live with an attitude of reverence. You know, I think about the things that the Bible says that parents are supposed to do for their kids. To raise their children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. And yet, there's tons of parents that as they're raising their kids, everything else is more important than what God says. I'll never forget this parent many years ago. And kids in youth group, uh, and her son was really struggling spiritually. And I remember uh, we, got, like, we got these youth leaders around, and they were kind of surrounding this kid, and we were starting to make progress, and we're teaching, and they're discipling, and we're having these small group discussions. And I'm starting to see like the spiritual lights, like everybody is coming alongside and working on his well-being. And then uh, he just quits coming to youth group. And so I called his mom, and I just said, hey, you know, I noticed that um, your son's not coming to youth group. What's going on? And you want to know what her response was? She said he's in math, and math's really important because I want him to be able to get a good job. And so he has a lot of homework, and we're going to prioritize school over being in Christian fellowship. Do you want to know how many people do that kind of thing with softball, with football, with all kinds of different sports? And they don't raise their kids in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. Or I remember my kids coming home and just saying, you know, I don't want to go to Sunday school because there's no kids my age there and it's not very fun. And they just didn't want to go. <laughs> you know what I said? What if you're the, like one of my kids goes, I'm the only boy in class. And I said, well, what if somebody from the, somebody, some, somebody visits with a boy and you're not there? If you're not there, then that other kid will be the only boy that's there. You need to go to Sunday school just in case someone else comes. And aside from that, your Sunday school teachers are praying for you. They're preparing a lesson for you, and they're going to teach you this lesson. And God actually is intending to speak to you through what your teacher says. So you need to show up with a good attitude and looking forward to what God's going to say to you through them. Do you have any idea how many parents um, read, raise your children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord, and they prioritize everything else? That is insanity. Um, and it's common sense um, because you should know that the spiritual things are more important than other things. By the way, um, years later, um, that kid who didn't come to youth group right at a key moment in his life, who started studying math so he could get a good job. By the way, I, I'm a big believer in, in education, and I don't think you should have your kids failing math so they can go to church. I think there's ways to accomplish both. But you want to know something? A few years later, this kid gets arrested, and he has a felony because he hung out with the wrong crowd, and his life continued down that road. And, and I remember thinking to myself years later, and I never called the mom and said this, but I remember thinking to myself, what do you think is better for his career? 
Um, I think probably whatever math grade he got is offset by his felony as to what kind of a job he's going to be able to get. And by the way, that's earthly good. That's not even thinking about his eternal destiny. And when it comes to these kinds of things, God tells us what we're supposed to do. And we should do it with reverence for God, trusting that God will do his part, but I'm going to do what God tells me to do. You know, the people in my life who just read what God says and then do what God says no matter what it is, those, they inspire me. You know, I had a roommate when I was in college, and he was dating this girl, and then they broke up, and he had this really cool leather jacket that I just thought was amazing. And I loved it. I thought it was really cool. And he used to wear it. His dad bought it for him for Christmas. And he was dating this girl. And he used to let this girl wear his jacket. And um, when they broke up, this girl goes to him and says, can I have your jacket? (laughs) And he gave it to her. And by the way, to this day, I still think that's crazy. I don't think he should have given it to her. But you want to know why he read it? You want to know why he gave it to her? Because he did his devotions, and he was reading in Luke where it says, give to anybody who asks of you. And if somebody asks for your shirt, give it to them. And he read that, and he just thought, okay, so in my life, you know, God's saying I need to do this, and yes, I really want this jacket, but you know what? She asked for it. I'm just going to give it to her. I'll tell you something else about this guy, too. Every time I got in the car with him, that was back when the speed limit was 55. It drove me crazy. But wherever we went, he drove 55 because he said, you know, Romans 13 says you're supposed to obey the laws of the land. So he'd get on the freeway and he'd drive 55. And, you know, there's, there's all kinds of things. Like, we can think about all those kinds of things. But I just want you to know, the thing that stood out to me about this guy is that in his life, whatever God said, he did it. And that inspired me. And by the way, that is what God intends. That's the way God intends every one of us to live. And that is how Noah lived. And so as we wrap this up, one of the things that we've got to think about is um, Jesus. You know what Jesus' estimation of this story is? Uh, Jesus' estimation of this story is this. Jesus says, just as it was in the days of Noah so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. You know, that's when Jesus looks at the story of Noah. He says, what's the message? And I would just say, you know, we ought to have with this, we're comforted, we're inspired to live a righteous life, but we ought to have a sense of urgency Because, you know, one of the things we're going to find out when we read the rest of this story, how it goes, do you know everything happens in this story exactly the way God said it was going to happen? You know, God's trustworthy, and He tells the truth. And and that should give us a sense of urgency. You know, God right now is very patient, and He is gracious, and He's being kind to His enemies. You know, the Bible says that, Jesus says that, that right now God is causing the rain to fall on the field of the righteous and the unrighteous. And one of the reasons that you and I are supposed to be good to our enemies is because God is good to His enemies. But there's going to come a day where God's goodness to His enemies is going to end. And I just want to challenge anybody who's here sitting in this room. You might be religious, 
But if you don't have a personal relationship with God, you know, judgment day is coming. And God is gracious, and He is patient, and He is kind. But everybody dies, and everybody is going to stand before God and give an account. And people only have one hope, and that hope is Jesus that He came, that He lived the perfect life, that He died on the cross, and that when we put our faith in Him, God actually credits us with His righteous life. God forgives us for sin, for our sin. But if anybody is living on this earth and they're shaking their fist in God's face and they're saying, no, I don't love you and I don't want to follow you, God's gracious and patient right now, but all of a sudden, it's going to be too late. And, And that's True, if you're here, you should think about whether or not you know the Lord. You know, isn't that what Jesus said? Uh, the, the road's wide that leads to destruction, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and few find it. And by the way, Jesus is talking to religious people when he says that. And so we need to make sure we're saved. And by the way, if you are saved, then you will love God, you will read the Bible you will want to do what it says. And you should also, your greatest desire should be to reach the unsaved people that God has put around you. And if they're your family members, their spiritual well-being is actually more important than Thanksgiving dinner. And their, their spiritual condition is more important than you rationalizing their spiritual condition so you'll feel, feel better. Um, You do what God calls you to do. Call people to have a genuine relationship with the Lord. And by the way, Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. People who just read the Bible and blow it off don't know Jesus. And and that doesn't mean we don't struggle with sin, right? We all struggle with sin. Uh, I do things that are wrong on a regular basis. I confess that. I ask God for forgiveness. But people who just live a life in rebellion against God don't know God. And we should not say they're okay to ourselves so we'll feel better. We should pursue their salvation before it's too late. Because at a certain point, it's going to be too late. God gives all of us this life. And by the way, He tells us too that life is a vapor. So let's live an inspiring Christian life. Let's be comforted by God's nature and character and His power. And let's be people that diligently obey God. We do what He tells us to do. We trust Him to do what He will do. Let me pray for us. God, thank You for giving us Your Word. Thank You for this story. God, I ask that You would help us to be inspired by the things that we read in the Bible. God, I pray that people in this church would live an inspiring life, that You would reach their neighbors, that You would reach their family members, because they're just humble people who do whatever You tell them to do. God, I pray that you would give us the strength to do that. I also ask that you would help us uh, not to be defeated, discouraged, overcome by guilt. Lord, we know that you have provided a way for forgiveness. We just confess our sins, and you are faithful, and you are righteous, and you forgive us. But God, I pray that you would help us not to live on the level of compromise, but that we would live on the level of faithfulness in your name. Amen.